It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello everyone, there is no live guest today, but for our 100th episode, I have put together two compilation episodes, one for cricket and one for horse racing. I hope you enjoy the mix of them both. It was fun to make, but much harder work than I thought. Our first horse racing guest and our first ever guest on the paddock and the pavilion was Italian apprentice jockey and former ballerina Gaia Bonny. This is how the first show began back in July 2020. Welcome to the paddock, Gaia. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Uh, ciao. Ciao. <laughs> Gaia was shortly followed by Rab Havlin in episode three, a key man at Clarehaven. Rab returned in the spring of 2021 for episode 44, when he was looking forward to the new flat turf season. And as an old timer, if I can say that, do you still get excited about the, the new turf season and returning to the Rowley Mile? Yeah, I think if you didn't, you know, you shouldn't be in the game, really. It's, uh, you know, that that's that, that's at a time of the year when you, you know, you have expectations for horses. Obviously, some let you down, but some ex- exceed expectations. So it's always a very exciting time. And, uh, you know, the spring is in the air and everybody's got a, a you know, a lighter step. And, you know, you've got the whole season to look forward uh, good, good times and bad. A flat jockey who tasted success at the Breeders' Cup 2020 was Northern-based jockey Tom Eaves, who joined me in episode 33 to talk about his win on glass slippers in the Breeders' Cup turf sprint. It, it was an amazing, amazing week, and that you know, over there we were there, over there for a week, uh, so the, you've got the build-up of it and everything. But uh, yeah, to um, to, to actually come away and win, it's uh, it's massive. So uh, yeah, no, it was uh, it was great. It was the first European horse to win the the turf sprint in in the history of the Breeders' Cup as well. Yeah, no, it was it, it was amazing. Um, you know that the, the the team at home had done an amazing job with her, and uh, she she was uh, she was absolutely electric on the on the night. And uh, yeah, we'll never forget that. And how different was it riding a sprint race in in America than in this country? Um, yeah, obviously it's it, it's different different track. Um, 
I was sort of aware that was going to be a lot of pace on, but um, at the end of the day, it's it's another race, and uh, and and that's the way you got to look at it, um, and go go through the farm like you would any race, and, uh, and 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 try and keep it as simple as possible. And I read you had some advice from Ryan Moore as well on how to ride glass slippers. Yeah, it was the same as anything, you know. Um, I'd never I'd never ridden there before. I'd obviously watched plenty of the races from there and everything, but. Um, yeah, just uh, I ju- just asked him how uh, how he thought the, the the track was riding and uh, and 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 how uh, he'd experienced it in the past. I mean, he's uh, he he is the best and uh, and he's a great great fellow and uh, and yeah, just uh, yeah, just uh, going into any race like that, you just try and get as much information as you can and uh, and 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 then you just ride your race as you find it. Then. So was that the first uh, ride you'd had in America? Uh, I had ridden at Belmont a few, uh, yeah, a few years ago, yeah, but it, it was my first ride at the Breeders' Cup. Over the sticks, I was joined by Tabitha Worsley, Paige Fuller and Matty Batchelor. Tabitha had the thrill of riding sub-lieutenant in the 2021 Grand National. The horse was trained by her mum, Georgie Howe. Here's a short clip about her memorable family day at Aintree in episode 94. And as for the race itself, the... Uh, how did he take to the fences and the, the, the 40 runners in a race? He loves it. He, he's such a professional. I mean, on the whole, you just leave him to it. He, he's got the experience around there. And I learned very quickly on top with the, the best thing you can do is let a horse just find the fence and, and don't be asking too much. And they take to it or they don't. And I say I was lucky enough he'd been around before and he was very good. So I just got to sit and enjoy him and... They went very, very fast, which you'd expect in a 40-runner handicap. Um, But he just kept plugging away and he just stays all day. He just probably doesn't have the gears that he would have had two years ago. And he got round, he came 14th of the 15 finishes. How did that feel when you finished the Grand National? Oh, it's unbelievable to say. We always went there sort of hoping, first things first, safe round, get round complete, everyone back in one piece and if we could then finish top half we'd be over the moon and he's done exactly that so couldn't be happier Paige Fuller celebrated the 100th winner of her career last year and in episode 67 Paige recalled her brief stint at university yes it was brief before she decided horse racing was the life for her yeah I started I did half a term at Exeter after a gap year <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you, um, so you had a gap year, and then you went to university, and then you left after a short period. Was that? Yeah, it was. I I did I did three months working in France when I first left school, and then I came back and helped my parents train point to points at home, uh, and was just riding out all over the place. And when when I went to university, to be honest, I didn't. I ended up most, mostly riding out every morning because I got bored, sat around at uni and I never made it to, I probably made it to three lectures. So I very quickly realised that university I could always go back to, but my riding wasn't going to wait. So I just kicked on and, and tried to make the most of my riding. Without much doubt, the most entertaining jockey to feature on the paddock and the pavilion was Matty Batchelor. As well as Wocket Woy, Matty looked back at his days riding Coney Gree and Carruthers for the Bradstock family. But perhaps Matty's most unique days racing came when he rode on the flat and over the jumps 
on the same day at two different racecourses. Only Matty could do something like that. It was in the week. It was, it was on a Saturday, I think. And Charlie, he, he was talking to me in the morning at breakfast. He said, right, he said, because I'd also had, Gary was down at the yard by then. He was working there as well. And I'd got my flat license as well. I'd got an apprentice license. So I was riding a couple on the flat as well because it was quite light, just to sort of tidy myself up a bit. That didn't work. <laughs> and so Charlie said, you can go to, you've got a choice. You can go to Lingfield and ride in the apprentice race, five furlongs, and ride my horse called Lift Boy. Or he said, you can go to Windsor and ride in your first chase over through Mark. A bit of a difference was, there. A lot of difference, yeah. And the sprinter was had a real good chance of winning because he'd won, he'd won a few. And I was like, oh, no. And obviously, I, I'd rode over hurdles. The next phase, I wanted to ride over fences. And this horse was like, he was an old schoolmaster. So he said, oh, he said, have a think about it. He said, let me know what you think. So I'd, I'd come out and... Gary had got the gist of the conversation and he come up to me, he said, right, he said, go back in there. He said, tell my dad, he said, you can ride in the first at Lingfield. He said, and you will easy make it to Windsor for the three o'clock, the handicap chase. He said, you, you're, you'll do it easy, not a problem. So like, I was quite, at that stage, I was quite sort of scared of Charlie because he, he, he sort of, he'd tell you what he'd thought and, so I said, oh, Mr. Moore, I said, I was just chatting to Gary. I said, he, he thinks I'll be able to do, I'll be able to do the two sort of races. He said, I'll be able to ride in the first and I'd have plenty of time to drive to Windsor. He's like, no, 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 you're not doing it. One or, no, you're not doing it. And I sort of started muttering and, <laughs> and then luckily Gary come in and he said, he said, dad, he said, you've got plenty of time. He said, you'd be able to go to Lingfield get in the car and he'd be able to go to Windsor and ride in the three mile handicap chase. He said, and Mr. Charlie reluctantly agreed. He said, if you don't make it, there'll be trouble and all that. But I had plenty of time. So yeah, it was great. I went to Lingfield, rode in the apprentice race over five furlongs and won that and got in the car and went and rode in my first three mile handicap chase for Windsor and finished fifth. Oh, so you won the first one, but what? What? what you not see that done today, would you? Some, well, you can't do it today. You no, can't ride it. You can't do it today. Yeah, yeah. That, but, I, don't, I don't think there many be done at one of five furlong sprint, and then when rode in a hand three mile handicap chase. National hunt racing is a dangerous sport, and I had the great pleasure of speaking to former jockey Jacob Pritchard Webb in episodes seventy eight and seventy nine. Jacob had a devastating fall at Ortoy on the twenty third of June two thousand and twenty which left him paralysed from the waist down. In a heartwarming episode, Jacob opened up about the pressures of riding and how he is now looking to the future. And immediately the first thing I did was, was try to look towards the future and what, and kind of, in a strange way, there was a bit of a relief that, because I was still trying to make it as a jockey and it was always playing on my mind and it was always getting me down that I hadn't made it and will I make it? In a strange way, there was a bit of a relief that that was over. That pressure that I was putting on myself to make it as a professional jockey because I wanted it so badly, that was gone. So then I could kind of then there was look a release. Forward. Thing. There was a release from that sort of pressure. Yeah. 
yeah and then also i looked and then i remember just wanting to see my friends a lot and it made me instantly realize that god there is so much more to life and how important my friends are because i was almost putting everything into one riding was everything and my social life was having a an effect and you know i was i was very tired and therefore miserable and didn't want to be you know and it was just like yeah i was almost like in a small way kind of it was a little bit of i was quite glad in a, in a small way um how, probably how, how did it affect your parents because they must have spent a lot of time in a foreign country well i joked that they basically got a you know they got a summer in paris but uh it wasn't well, quite the weather the circumstance. was good. Yeah. yeah they were it wasn't quite in the circumstances uh that that they would have liked um they've been fantastic yeah yeah they've um i mean from what i've seen they've been as strong as a rock obviously i can't comment on what what they what happens behind closed doors but um yeah of course it's been hard um it's been hard for all of them but i suppose they it, it's funny they take strength from how i have dealt with it but then had the reason i've dealt with it so well is because of them so um but it's been it was definitely a blow on all of the family yeah grandparents included as an update jacob advised me only last week that he is now concentrating on his table tennis and working for sky sports racing a few times a month and doing some bloodstock work a brave young man who is now trying to live as normal a life as he can and enjoy it Jacob will return to the paddock and the pavilion later in 2022, but do go back and take a listen to this inspiring young man in episodes 78 and 79. And if you follow French jump racing, catch him on Sky Sports Racing. On the subject of the pressures that jockeys are under, in episode 68, I spoke to award-winning film director and former jockey Nathan Horrocks about his powerful new film, The Fall. The fall focuses on the mental health of jockeys. Here's a short clip from my chat with Nathan. You know, my English teacher would be turning in his grave knowing that Horrocks had written a script because I was absolutely awful at school. I was always called out for being nothing but a dreamer, uh, you know, always looking out the window, really. So it was, it was quite surprising this kind of came out of me. But um, I put this thing together and... Um, I showed it to um, Paul Struthers of the Professional Jockers Association and he was immediately taken with it because it was a completely different look at what horse racing is. You know, what, you know, you look at all the, you know, the famous films that have been made about horse racing. They're all, you know, it's about glory, celebration. Yeah, it's, it's, glory. About, it's, it's, it's a glory story. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, you know, and, and I love those films. I love those you know, the champions, the sea biscuits of the of the world, you know, the secretariats, you know, and to me, they're sometimes a little bit unrealistic, you know, in, in, in some, because you've got to make it, you know, like a, a dreamlike story. But I wanted to show a different side of racing. I wanted to show a side of racing that I've seen and I still see, you know, when I'm doing my jockey cam work I'm, and I'm, I'm in the changing room on a, on a regular basis, I can see those signs when someone's not having a good day. They don't quite show it to the rest of the world, but I recognise that person because that was me at that time as well, you see. So it's uh, it was a real um, a real cathartic for me thing for me to get this this story down. And Paul Struthers read it and said, "You've got to do something with this. You've got to get it like finished, or we've got to try and get it funded." 
and he offered you know to you know, offer some money to pay for it and um, it just wasn't enough to to get it get it going so we you know we kind of you know pitched this thing around and the even keel foundation which is a, a charity for, uh, for 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 men with mental health was was put together by by a lady called Sam Hillier and um she said she'd help her help fund this as well and um but it still wasn't quite enough because we wanted to do a really good job of this and and it's like building a house you know if you want to if you want to build a, a decent house, you've got to you've got to have the funding to make it. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit like that with making a, making a film. Really, you know, they they do cost a lot of money to make if you're going to do them properly. So, um, lucky enough, um, Nigel Payne, who used to be uh, chief executive at the uh, Professional Jockeys Association, uh, who is now um, trustee of the uh, Sir Peter O'Sullivan Charitable Trust, he read the script and immediately said how much do you need to make this? And, um, I, you know, I told him I needed, I needed a certain amount and he was like, right, let, here's the money. Go and, go and make it the best it can possibly be. The important thing we all need to understand that the jockeys are, are, you know, supreme athletes first and foremost. But the other thing that we don't understand is, you know, we, we see them as, as stars of our sport. So we think that they're, you know, they're, they're fine financially and, and, and doing well in life you know we see them in, as, as the superstars of racing what we don't understand is they're freelancers you know they if they don't ride they don't get paid and um, that brings a certain amount of pressure if you're at a certain level of rider you know even at the top that that brings pressure because you want to if you're at the top you still want to be riding them big big races and then big winners but even the guys you know in the middle or even in the lower uh, table of the of the jockeys uh, jockeys list they're always going to be struggling to make ends meeting sometimes you know because they're always chasing the next ride because there's always somebody else to take your place and that can be a frightening world to live in and what i wanted to show is that that, that can bring a whole world of pressure to an athlete when you're always chasing the next paycheck and making sure that not only the ride that you had that day is important, but the one you're going to be getting in the future, you know, you're always trying to keep everybody happy. So you've constantly got to be showing happiness and professionalism in, in, in that world. So the only time they get to really let go of that is, is in the car journey home because they can't really be showing it at home and they definitely can't be showing it in front of their peers in the changing room. You've got to be on show all the time. Co-director of the film, who also played the role of the trainer, was Robert Bathurst, of Cold Feet and Downton Abbey fame. Robert joined me on the podcast to discuss the film and his love of the turf. Uh, my interest in the, in the game is, is enormous. I mean, especially in the jumps, although increasingly in the flat, actually. I've, I've been very, very drawn to uh, the, the flat this year, especially listening to the Nick Nuck Daily podcast. I don't know if you've listened to that, but it's... Certainly it's do, yes. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant um, daily summation of what's going on in the, in the, in the flat, which I've always found too confusing to really engage with. But uh, anyway, he's opened up that up for me. It's... Um, uh, yeah, I've always loved the, loved the game. I love the journalism of it. I love the language of racing. I love the characters in it. And I like the smell of it. And uh, so when Nathan uh, wanted to talk about it, uh, this idea, uh, yeah, I, I literally jumped at it. And um, I thought this would be really, really interesting to be part of. The paddock and the pavilion added an international flavour in episode 51 when I spoke to the award-winning American racing journalist and author, Jay Hufty, about the Kentucky Derby, the run for the roses. And uh, 
What makes the Kentucky Derby so special as a horse race and for Americans? Well, it's certainly the most hyped race, uh, heavily promoted race in, uh, uh, in the world uh, that ever was, let's face it. Um, it's uh, synonymous with horse racing in the farthest corners of the world. I, uh, I would think that um, the race itself uh, is distinctive and it's, uh, it's distance and it's timing. Uh, a May race where some of these horses aren't even a full three years old yet physically. But uh, from the standpoint of, uh, of just general interest, um, we seem to focus on the Kentucky Derby more than any other horse race, uh, simply because of uh, the momentum of history and the, uh, the great, uh, you know, we're, we're approaching the 147th running, which I know is kind of a drop in the bucket compared to your Derby, but still it's, uh, it's the longest running uh, major race in this country, uh, rivaled only by races like the Travers and uh, the Belmont Stakes. Yeah, I see um, you're a bit behind us. We got, we got underway in 1780. Yeah, well, you had to do something after independence. You know, you had to, uh, you know, you, you didn't have us to kick around anymore. So we, uh, you just started your derby. And I read that in the States, it's known as the most exciting two minutes in sport. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, and again, uh, it's part of the hype, part of the advertising genius of the people that are behind it. Um, I would imagine you'd get some arguments from uh, anyone who watched uh, some of the great uh, uh, some Tom Tom Brady go through the last two minutes of any Super Bowl that he was uh, he, he needed a touchdown or uh, the last two minutes of any uh, encounter between uh, 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 say uh, uh, Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. But uh, yes, for uh, a uh, a sporting event that uh, takes only two minutes uh, of your time to appreciate. It's, uh, it's pretty intense, and uh, you, you do tend to hold your breath for two minutes. And I went down under, I wish, via Zoom to chat to leading Australian trainer Richard Friedman. Richard talked fondly about Sub-Zero, the 1992 Melbourne Cup winner. After retiring from racing, the grey became a celebrity down under. Uh, reading Sub Zero was a bit of a sort of celebrity, didn't it? He appear on television and things like that. Yeah, well, he was. He was. He's one of. The, I classed him as the the world's greatest thoroughbred till he died, which was only just a few months ago. And um, he won a Melbourne Cup. He then became the clerk of the course at Flemington Racecourse in Melbourne. He, he did that for fifteen years, ten or fifteen years. And then when he retired from that, he started to visit nursing homes, hospitals, hospices. And he, they would take him into the hospital. They had special shoes, padded shoes made for him, and take him up in the elevator to a ward, and he would just walk along the ward visiting the children. And the amount of pleasure that horse gave to uh, the elderly, the infirm, the sick children, dying children, uh, was, was quite astounding. And, you know, if you ever get a chance to get on the net and see some vision of what that horse did, uh, it'll bring a tear to your eye. Oh, that will remind uh, people in this country uh, about Red Rum, who appeared on uh, the Sports Personality of the Year show one year and went up in the lift and also uh, attended lots of other events as well. So horses can obviously do a lot of good when they're in the, in the presence of children and people who are, who are not well. Yes, they can bring a lot of joy to them. And, you know, the more opportunities we get to introduce horses to, to people who, who need a bit of help, the better. One of the most popular stories in the UK media during 2021 
was the successful campaign to save Park Lane stables in Teddington, southwest London, who were facing closure unless they raised a million pounds to buy the freehold. Park Lane stables do such amazing work for disabled people in the local community. I was extremely lucky to speak to Natalie O'Rourke, Park Lane's hardworking and inspirational manager, both before and after they raised the money. What's your reaction now um, after the crowdfunding appeal has ended? Well, just just total gratitude, to be honest, to everybody that's got behind us. I mean, the really amazing thing is that we did this with the power of the people. We didn't get any big corporates behind us. We didn't get any um, money from our governing bodies. It was it was pure and simple, the power of the people. Elliot's disagreeing with me. But <laughs> yeah, he's shaking his head in the background there, yeah. Yeah, he's shaking his head. But... Um, but no, it was it was pure and simple people power. And um, I don't know if this is the right time to mention this, but there was one gentleman from uh, the racing industry. So he's a racehorse owner and he doesn't want his name to be put out there. But he came in at a really pivotal time because we'd kind of stalled. What happened was all the local people had given support. I'd saturated my social media. So I'd, I'd basically spoken to every single person that I knew or every single person that had ever been here and they donated so we were kind of like yeah we'd stalled is a really good way of putting it and um somebody came forward that was a race horse owner and I had an hour on the phone with him and he asked me loads of questions you know it was a bit like Dragon's Den and I didn't know where the conversation was going and um at the end of the conversation he said I'm going to I'm going to give you 50,000 pounds and um, and I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I was I was thinking, oh, what do I say? Do I say wow, or do I say oh? And, and I was trying really hard to like measure my sort of um, reaction to him. But um, anyway, he 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 came through good as his word, and he pledged fifty thousand pounds. But what happened was then that gave me personally like a massive boost to carry on. I thought yes. He, he just came in at the right time to give us the boost that we needed. But also, I think it made a few other people go, oh, hang on, somebody's, you know, given them a big chunk there and believes in them, and it's got other people to, to, to donate as well. And then he spoke to a few of his friends in the racing industry uh, that are racehorse owners as well, and they put in um, significant amounts. So um, although, like, we're... We're kind of like worlds apart from the racing industry because, like, you know, we've got cobs and sort of safe as houses type ponies and horses here. But what was just so heartwarming for us was that the racing industry got behind us and really believed in us and wanted to support us and really wanted us to be successful. And, and that was just, that was so amazing for us. And we're really, really grateful. And I hope that they all know what a massive difference they made to us. It's been a roller coaster year for Natalie and everyone at Park Lane Stables. After major discussions with the landlord, Natalie finally got the keys back to the Teddington site last December. Natalie, who I plan to interview again on the podcast in the near future, said last week that they plan to move back permanently to Teddington in the spring. As Natalie said on TV, dreams do come true. And in the New Year's Honours list, many of you will have heard that Natalie received a letter from the Queen 
informing her she had been awarded an MBE. If ever someone deserved an award, Natalie did. In May 2021, Sky Sports released The Uncomfortable Race, a horse racing documentary presented by Josh Apiafi, which focused on the sport's struggles with diversity and inclusion. Josh interviewed Kanan Francis, Callum Helliwell and Elijah Michael about their own experiences in the sport. I was joined by Josh in episode 61 to talk about the programme and the way forward. Sometimes it, it needs to be uncomfortable to actually get action taken to put things right. Agreed. Absolutely. Nothing happens from, from jovial conversations and, and off we go. It happens from having difficult conversations. Um, it happens from trying new things. It's adversity to risk. You know, there's all sorts of things that you've got to look at and, and work out. If we go down this route, if it doesn't work, we'll trot, we can stop and then we can go down another one. It just, but it also, I think one of my roles, I think, or, I, or self-appointed roles is also now to make it feels safe for the sport to, to move down this route. There is no risk whatsoever for this sport to become more diverse. It needs to because you know it's linking it and localising it to why should I give a monkeys about the whole sport being uh, uh, embracing diversity and inclusion. So I've got to localise that. So if it's about the funding mechanism we've talked about already in this podcast about the, uh, the media rights and how tomorrow's media rights are going to be paid for by a section or a generation coming through which currently are not engaged with our sport and they are with others and bookmakers are going to gravitate towards those others because they're cheaper that's one way so they, that's how all race courses are funded who are the most some of the most powerful organizations in our sport that's what they've got to realize but at the end of the day those chief executives in those roles of those race courses on those senior organizations are probably only going to be there for five years statistically it's around five or six years you're a chief executive i'm talking about 10 years time so now you're talking about legacy stuff that you've got to invest now for perhaps when you're not here. You know, in fact, when I'm not here, because, you know, who knows, who knows how long we're going to be on the planet. But equally, we've got to invest. And we should. It shouldn't be about what your annual bonus is because you've squeezed as much as possible out of this last 12 months, no matter what period we've been through. It should be that you're, you're building something towards... Um, it's like we're all shareholders of the sport at the end of the day, and we want to increase the share price of the sport. And I seriously worry if we don't that that share price in the sport will be dropping significantly over the next 10 years later in episode 87 it's about opening it up i was joined by callum to discuss what progress is being made we call ourselves a sport of kings which is good and bad i think um <laughs> I, I think you 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 do find yourselves racing as an elite sport it always has been elite sport. It's very much in that realm of Formula One where money talks and you just look at the sales at tax and the money that goes, goes around for these untried horses is, is crazy money. But we are not a society that is ruled by kings anymore. We're a society which is very diverse, very different, multilingual, multicultural. We should be encouraging, we should be encouraging that on our race courses. I think the cold faith of all of this is on our race courses. Where are we going to see the different faces at Royal Ascot, at Cheltenham? I'm going to Cheltenham tomorrow. Can't wait. Very excited. I know I won't see, on a race course actually, not working at the event, it's something I'll bring up in a second, but not working on the race course, I may see less than 20. 
other faces who are not white. I think that's something that we really need to look at. Why are we not attractive to people who are not from similar backgrounds to what we're seeing on race courses? What are we doing that isn't attractive? Because this isn't a new problem. This is a problem that we've known for a long time. And whether we want to call it a problem or not, it's, it's an issue. So what are we doing to address that issue? And what are we not doing at the moment that's leading people not to want to come? And I think that's crucial. And I think there are plenty, and I think it's all about data. There are plenty of people far smarter than me which can access that data, break that data down and understand where it's coming from. So hopefully in the future, the the thing I want to see immediately happen is I don't just want to see black people behind the bar serving pints. I don't want to see black people just bust in working in restaurants. I want to see black people enjoying a day at the races. I want to see different of different people of different cultures, people of different religions, people of different sexual orientations. I don't care who you are if you come along and enjoy the day out because it's a great day out, Stephen. You and I both know that. It is a cracking day. And I, I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to get to John. I haven't been there for years. So I'm very, very excited. And um, I just hope that one day maybe I'll get to John and I'll just see a few more different faces and a few more people all enjoying the day. And hopefully that's where we'll go. That's 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 a, that's what I'm looking for. Are you positive that British racing can embrace more diversity and inclusion over the next few years? It doesn't want to be long term. It needs to be relatively short term that things do change. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I believe in the people who are currently out there trying to make change. I think that the great thing about this conference that I was at at Windsor was that it was full of people who were not just ideas people. They were doers. And there are lots of great ideas. But you know when you can go to these sorts of events and everyone's got great ideas, but as soon as the event finishes, everyone goes home and doesn't think about it. I was surrounded by great people, great people who had good thoughts, but knew how to execute those thoughts, knew how to create plans. And just doing that next step, and I think we're very lucky to have some very, very smart people within this industry, very, very good people who all want to make changes to make sure this industry remains sustainable and because if we don't it won't be sustainable and um yeah we'll, we'll all lose the sport we love so much so i'm glad i think we're in really good hands and i think things will only improve and to all those people on twitter who have a different opinion that's absolutely fine too but we have evidence that we're making a change and i don't see the evidence of remaining the same is going to work Let's hope Callum's optimism proves correct. The future of horse racing depends on it being more diverse and open to all. Just like the cricket with Roland Butcher, I've enjoyed the company of racing experts, trainer John Berry and former jockey and BBC presenter Richard Pittman. John let me know his favourite racing memory in episode 5, while Richard remembered his first ride for Fred Winter's stable back in 1964. Well, if I look in, if I look in the wider world, I would say Shergar. I was lucky enough to be at Ascot when he won the King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Diamond Stakes in July 1981, when I was 15, and of course he'd already won the Derby effortlessly, effortlessly, with a slightly less flamboyant victory in the Irish Derby. I was cheeky enough, you know, the the wonderful old unsaddling enclosure with those lions and the marble steps that's got sadly gone forever. Um, the iconic winner's enclosure. As he was led away in the ropes, you know, nowadays there's double railings of white plastic railings and everything. Before it was just a rope separating the horse from the crowd. I was cheeky enough to 
lean over, lean across the rope and pat him as he walked, as he was being led away. And, you know, for a racing obsessed 15 year old boy from Scotland to be at Ascot seeing one of the greatest horses ever winning a great race and patting him afterwards was, was very, very special. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say of the wider world, I'd say Shergar. What a great opportunity to start with Fred Winter, the former champion jockey legend, really. Well, I, I went to him because I knew that he would be successful. He was such a strong man with great connections. And we only had six horses when I joined him the first week. Three of us were there, uh, but they quickly grew because he had a winner straight away. Uh, Jay Trump, who went on to win the national in his first year, was a, a winner. They say it was his first runner. It actually wasn't. I went off 10 minutes earlier at Ludlow on a horse called 177, who Fred could, he was the only one who could ride him at home because he pulled so hard. And so I tootle off to Ludlow. Uh, Tommy Smith, the American amateur, went to Sandown for Jade Trump. And uh, Fred said to me, you won't hold this horse. You can't hold him at home. You won't hold him in a race. So what I want you to do is at the starting tape, face the opposite way to the way the horses are going to go. And then when the tapes go up, turn around and follow him behind. Well, we did that. And what he, I couldn't hold him, 14 runners. He burst his way through the field, quickly round the first bend at Ludlow is a fence. He saw the fence and went, yahoo, and stood off so far. You know, I've never ridden anything of this class. And he pulled me out of the saddle because I hadn't slipped the reins. And he pulled me out like a stone out of a catapult. And I landed running in, in front of him. I landed on the other side when he was still jumping the fence. It was quite incredible. I got a real kicking. Um, and when I got home, Fred said, well, you, you learn by your mistakes. You won't get a ride, another ride for three months. So that's how you learn. Um, so people who think that Jay Trump was his first runner are incorrect. I was his, on his first runner, 177, but it ended only about 30 seconds after it started. After his grade two win yesterday at Warwick on Stag Horn, I thought I should squeeze in Nick Schofield. Great ride, by the way, Nick. Nick joined me in episode 38. In this clip, I asked Nick how he got started in jump racing. Yeah, well, from my mother and father, my mum used to sort of like show horses and things like that. My dad was a point-to-point jockey. He was champion in 1989, uh, national champion. He's since passed away, but um, he, uh, he, I think I used to go to the point-to-points and, you know, amateur races, and he took me to Cheltenham and all the, the race courses. And uh, I used to ride a lot of ponies when I was younger. I sort of from probably as soon as I could walk, I was on a horse. So um, I, I did a lot of showing when I was um, sort of under 10 years old. I, I won a horse of the year show, Royal International, the Royal, you know, all over the country riding for different people. And um, then I sort of went into show jumping after 10 and represented England and did a lot of things. Um, rode at Horse of the Year Show, Royal International, um, Hickstead, and did all of that. And, you know, my, I think my mother wanted me to get an education and carry on the show jumping because it was all going very well. But because I got that bug off my father, you know, being a jockey, um, that was the route I wanted to go down. And as soon as sort of I was 16, I was booked in to go to college and 
uh, some of my dad knew had a one in novice riders race a local point point at black forest lodge and he was a blacksmith the fellow that trained there. he was course a mare called no way a lady and she wasn't biggest but she had previous good form and anyway i sort of had my first ride there you know thought i was a proper jockey rode really short toe in the iron and you know like all, all the gear no idea sort of thing and um anyway i was going right around the inside like everything was going looking like the winner come to the last ditch you see, must have seen a stride that not even ap mccoy's would have thought was possible um outside the wings going for a big picture anyway she didn't quite make it you know turned the somersault and um, broke my collarbone so my first ride was a bit of a disaster finally to end this celebration of my horse racing clips i thought we should hear again from one of our most popular guests richard Pittman. Well, it's a pleasure, and every day is Christmas. At my age, when there's more behind you than in front of you, every day is Christmas. That's the 100 Up. I hope you have enjoyed this horse racing compilation. It was great fun to make. I would like to thank all my guests, friends, and contacts who have supported me during the year, and all you listeners. Do keep listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion in 2022. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Pad and Pav. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.